doing this evening, we're continuing in our series looking at church history, and uh, we've reached the part now where uh, we have we've looked at Luther, we've looked at Zwingli, and this evening we're going to be looking at the life of John Calvin. And I thought it's worth me mentioning right at the beginning, we're not going to be looking at what we nowadays call Calvinism, concerning things like predestination and election and issues and things like that. We'll be in a few weeks' time on a Sunday morning, but that's for another time. But almost certainly John Calvin would not have viewed that as distinctive for his theology. He'd be really confused that we call that Calvinism. Because Luther and Zwingli were in basic agreement with most of what we now call the five points of Calvinism. And would have actually viewed it as part of the Augustinian heritage of the church, what I call Augustine years before. The five points that we talk about were produced 55 years after Calvin's death. And in response to a man, uh, Jacob Arminius, who is in broad agreement with Calvin and his successors, save on five matters. So to narrow Calvin's theology down to five points that somebody disagreed with, someone who was only born five years before Calvin died, is to do injustice uh, to John Calvin. So we're not going to talk about that. For a start, Calvin wrote more on prayer, for example, in his institutes than he did on predestination. Um, But we're not going to just talk about what people disagreed with him about. Uh, He himself might not even have been a five-point Calvinist. You can ask me about that uh, afterwards. So what about the man himself? We've got a picture of him up on the screen. It's a bit uh, bit dark. We're going to look at his early life uh, to start with, from 1509 to 1536. John Calvin was born in 1509. Um, Just to give you an idea of where we are in history, by this point Martin Luther had already gained two bachelor's degrees and had already started teaching uh, theology at Wittenberg University. Zwingli too was already ordained a priest and was already acting as a chaplain in the army. So Calvin, in a, in a sense, is a whole extra generation after those guys. He was born in a sleepy town in France called Noyon, uh, about halfway between Paris and Lille. His family was Catholic, although his father and his older brother at points were excommunicated from the church. His father for punching a priest and uh, his brother for allegedly cutting the church out of money to give you a bit of context with his family. His mother died when he was four and he was brought up by his father and stepmother. We don't know loads about Calvin's youth, but he became a chaplain aged 12. Now, yes, that is 12. He wasn't a prodigy or anything. This was quite normal in those days and was a source of income for the family uh, rather than a real profession. Normally what they would do is they'd get the title and they'd pay someone else to actually do the job uh, and pay them less than they were being given. He went to university aged 14, again not unusual. His father wanted him to train to be a lawyer, so he obediently studied that until his father died when he was 22. After his father died, he went on to study theology along with Greek and Hebrew in Paris in order to pursue a career in the church. And during that time in Paris, Calvin experienced a sort of conversion experience sometime in 1532 when he was 23 years old. It wasn't as dramatic as Martin Luther's, but it would have a profound effect on his life. Calvin refers to it himself as a sudden conversion. And it changed his life so much that soon he actually had to flee Paris. He had a friend called Nicholas Kopp, and uh, he had also come to believe the gospel at a similar time. He was chosen to be rector of Paris University, and he announced himself as a Protestant to the whole group, and outed Calvin in the same speech. Which was very dangerous in those days, those guys had to flee and they fled to Basel. Calvin would never again return to Paris, and he would only once again return home 
uh, to his hometown to resign as chaplain. He'd spend the rest of his life as a fugitive and an exile from his home. During this time, Calvin began to write a little book addressed to the King of France about piety. That's how it started. It would eventually go on to be called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, concerning almost the whole sum of piety and whatever it is necessary to know about the doctrine of salvation, a work very well worth reading to all persons zealous for piety and lately published. Though we normally call it the Institutes, because that's a bit of a long title. It would eventually turn into this. Um, I've read it through, it's an interesting read, you might not agree with all of it, uh, but that little book became something much, much bigger. Its first edition in 1536 was 200 pages long, and the final edition in 1559 was over 1,500 pages long. And Calvin, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to sit quietly and write. That was his dream. But God had other plans. And so Geneva from 1536 to 1564 with a gap. In 1536, age 27, Calvin was on his way to Strasbourg. Strasbourg had become a sort of safe haven for reformers, and a lot of people met there somewhere they could go to safely. On the way, though, he passed through recently uh, turned Protestant state of, of Geneva. And a fiery redhead called William Farrell was there. And he told Calvin that God had brought him to Geneva to help with its reformation, and said that if he didn't stay, that God would curse him. He must have been pretty convincing because Calvin abandoned his plans to write more of his book in Strasbourg and stayed in Geneva and became pastor of the city. And he, along with Farrell, began to organise the church in the city of Geneva along reformed lines. All wasn't smooth in Geneva, though. Geneva had a city council that wasn't always the easiest to deal with. Calvin and Farrell presented reforms to the council, which they adopted eagerly, but then they refused to enforce them. They sort of sounded very enthusiastic, but they wouldn't actually do it. One of the requirements, for example, was to agree to a statement of faith before taking communion. Um, they agreed to it, but then wouldn't actually do it. There were also disagreements over reformed, uh, with other reformed cities over the issue of, you can guess it if you've been to the other uh, Reformation ones, the issue of communion. This time it was over what bread should be used. Bern, uh, a Protestant city up the road, wanted to use unleavened bread and wanted all churches to use unleavened bread for communion. Calvin and Farrell wanted to use normal bread. And the city council told Calvin and Farrell that they had to use unleavened bread. They then, in protest, refused to give communion to anybody, uh, including at an Easter service where a riot ensued and they were kicked out of the city by the council, all over whether to use normal bread or unleavened bread. So there you go, communion, always the one that gets to the Reformation. But Calvin was kicked out of the city, and that means that his first period in Geneva ended after only two years there. Calvin actually then moved on to Strasbourg and became pastor for French-speaking uh, people there. Martin Busser was the reformer there, and he was a bit of a matchmaker if you read a lot of the reformed accounts. He's generally the person you want to go to to find a wife. And uh, that's what happened. Martin Busser set him up with somebody, and Calvin then married a widow by the name of Idolette, who'd had two children by a previous marriage, and formerly been involved with the Anabaptist movement. Now you find out more about that as well. But in 1540, Geneva realised that it had made a huge mistake. Since Calvin had gone, church attendance had dwindled, they'd fallen out with Bern over land issues, and they decided that they wanted Calvin back. Calvin's response was this. 
I would rather submit to death a hundred times over than to that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. But in the end, uh, he went back on a six-month loan from Strasbourg and ended up staying 25 more years. It wasn't easy, though. In 1542, Isolette gave birth to a son called Jacques, but he died after only 22 days. Isolette never recovered from the birth and was ill for seven long years until she died in March 1549. His Roman Catholic opponents used this to taunt Calvin and said that it was a sign of God's judgment on him. Calvin, on the other hand, viewed this suffering in a very different way, as a means from God to make him trust him more. Here's a quote from Calvin on this commentary on Job. So then, let us learn not to put our trust in this world, or in any of the inferior means below, but let us lean upon God, seeing that he has given us our Lord Jesus Christ, to the end that being grafted into him, we may drain such strength and sap from him, that although our life is hidden, so that we are even in it, as it were, in death, we may not cease to continue still, and we may be maintained in a good and sure state, waiting till the true God has delivered us out of our worldly misery and out of all troubles. Calvin viewed his suffering as part of his life that God was using to make him more like Jesus. Calvin also suffered from many illnesses during his life. His successor, Theodore de Bez, wrote this about his health. He was naturally a spare and feeble frame, tending to consumption. During sleep, he almost seemed awake. For at least ten years, he never dined, and the only food he took was at supper, so that it is astonishing that he could so long escape consumption. He frequently suffered from migraines, which he only cured by fasting so occasionally to, re- to refrain from food for 36 hours. But by overstraining his voice, and as was to discover too late, by an in- immoderate use of aloes, he suffered from hemorrhoids, which degenerated into ulcers. And five years before his death, he was attacked by the spitting of blood. He goes on to describe gout and all sorts of things. He really had a really tough time in terms of diseases. But yet, through all that, he continued to keep going. He continued to preach the gospel. He continued to teach the city of Geneva. He also had battles on his hands in the city. Essentially, they tried to get the city to stop being so immoral. Calvin, like Luther and Zwingli, believed the church and the state should be linked and work together. But it was really hard to make people do things. And it was always a struggle for Calvin uh, and the council. He also had to deal with heretics who thought that they would be safe in Geneva. But Calvin didn't want Geneva to become a haven for heretics. In 1553, a Spanish heretic, Michael Servetus, was on the run from the Spanish Inquisition. Never expect the Spanish Inquisition here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also from the French authorities. Among other things, he didn't believe that Jesus was fully God, and he denied the Trinity. He travelled extensively across Europe and tried to get the reformers on his side. He went to see Booster in Strasbourg and other reformers in Basel. He and Calvin had uh, written quite a few letters to one another, using pseudonyms, trying to refute each other. Calvin apparently stopped writing back after Servetus sent him a copy of the Institute, heavily elevated, uh, where Servetus thought that he was in error. Servetus was warned not to come to Geneva, but he came anyway. 
The city council sentenced him to death and he was executed by burning at the stake. Now Calvin's influence in all this is disputed. Could Calvin have stopped the, uh, the execution? Did he want to? I imagine in the spirit of the time, Calvin and his views on the links between the church and the state, he would have been okay with it. And remember, actually, Zingli Zurich had executed Felix Mance, the Anabaptist, some 26 years before this. It's not just Calvin that was involved in this. The Catholic Church as well executed Protestants. So I'm not defending the execution of heretics. What I'm saying, though, is that this practice was common at the time across traditions. It wasn't all hardship and controversy, though. During his time in Geneva, he saw somewhere in the region of 2,000 churches planted across France under his guidance. France, by the end of his life, by some estimates, was up to 50% Protestant. That was an incredible... I'm just going to see if we go. Uh, this was an incredible turnaround uh, in his lifetime. He also oversaw the training of hundreds of men who would take the gospel across Europe and across the world. During the reign of Mary Tudor in England, known as Bloody Mary, many English Protestants fled to the continent and many settled in Geneva. John Knox, who reformed the church in Scotland, came to Geneva at this time and was strongly influenced by Calvin. He led the English-speaking church, which met in the door in the, the building next door to the cathedral uh, that was there. Uh, I've stood in the pulpit once when I went to Geneva there. It was open, you could stand there. And that was where Calvin had given his daily lectures. Calvin died in 1564, aged 54. He'd been ill uh, in 19, sorry, not 19, in 1558, and thought he might die. His response to that was he upped his workload so that he could finish the latest version of his institutes. In 1564, he strained his voice preaching, uh, which brought on a severe coughing fit, so much so that he ruptured vessels in his lungs. And from that point on, his health began to decline severely. After his death, according to his own wishes, he was buried in an unmarked grave in the cemetery in Geneva. He didn't want anybody to revere his grave. Instead, he wanted them to listen to what he'd said in his life. There's a plaque now over a grave there, but no one knows whether it's Calvin's sermon or not. And that's the way that Calvin wanted it. So what can we understand from his life? Well, finally, some lessons. The first one is we don't always get to choose how we serve in the body. Calvin wanted a quiet life of seclusion, writing his book. God had other plans, and God had better plans. And we still got the book as well, after all that. But often though in the body, it's not always about what gifts we have, though that's important. In part, it's what's needed in the body at the time. If we care about loving and serving the body rather than the gospel of self-fulfillment, then we'll serve in the ways that are needed rather than insisting on our own way. I played uh, guitar during the first part of lockdown. It would not have been my first choice for me. It's probably not the first choice for most people, let's face it. Um, but it needed doing. And I was able, sort of, to do it. There are wonderful people in church who are gifted in all sorts of amazing ways. But there are still always things like chairs to be set out and tea and coffee to be served. There's still things to wash up. I know as elders we need to work hard to make sure the right people are doing the right things, we're working on it. But we don't always get to choose how to serve in the body, and Calvin's a wonderful example of that. The second thing is that training leaders is important. Calvin's legacy, really, compared to many of the other reformers, is in part because he trained up 
so many people. He made it a big part of his life to be training and mentoring future leaders. He taught every day uh, in that auditorium next to the cathedral. Calvin influenced more nations and movements because he invested in people. And it's a reminder that we need to make that a priority. That was the way he influenced the whole of a country from this little secluded part in Geneva. He trained people for the ministry. He trained people uh, to be able to go and share the gospel and preach the word. And then finally, whatever Calvin taught, it was not incompatible with evangelism. As we said, putting aside what we call Calvinism, the sum of what Calvin taught was not incompatible with evangelism and mission. In fact, what Calvin taught fueled mission and set France and French-speaking Europe on fire. Oh, that that fire might burn again. Oh, that we might have the same evangelistic zeal and passion that Calvin and the people surrounding him had. That those amongst us who call ourselves Calvinists might live up to that name and have the zeal and evangelistic passion that Calvin himself had. So let's pray that we can learn some of these lessons uh, from the life of Calvin, and let's pray that we too can share uh, the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of John Calvin. Father, thank you for the wonderful things that you achieved through his ministry in Geneva and in Strasbourg. Father, help us not to revere the man, as he didn't want that either. But Father, help us to remember that you are an amazing God. And that, Father, you can use people in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different circumstances. And that, Father, you sustain us through suffering and persecution. Father, we pray that we would remember that you are the sovereign God who has your hand on our life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.